The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Salvation. We said that we believe that God created all men and in His image and likeness. We believe that man's greatest problem is that of sin. We believe that Satan tempted Eve through the serpent so that they both willfully and voluntarily transgressed the law and sinned. We believe that Adam and Eve, by sin and disobedience to God, fell from righteousness and fellowship with God. They became dead in sin and defiled in all their faculties. We believe that by God's design, the guilt of sin and a corrupted nature was imputed or implied to Adam and all his posterity, all of us. We believe that Adam's sin had an effect on all of men. and We are all counted guilty before God because of Adam's sin, and we all have an inherited sin nature, every single one of us. We believe that all mankind is conceived in sin. We believe that all mankind is destined to face God's wrath. And all mankind are now slaves to sin. We're subject to all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. And we believe that in this corrupted state, we are totally unable to do good. We're made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil. We all commit sin, transgression, and iniquity. None of us escapes that nature. None of us escapes that practice of it. We believe that this corrupted nature will remain throughout life, even in those who are regenerated. And that is the great frustration of the Christian life, isn't it? We have been saved. We've been set free. The power of sin over our lives has been broken, but we still carry about in our bodies this sinful nature that wars against us. Uh, I used to get such despair over it until one day I read Romans 7 and discovered the great apostle Paul said the very things that I was thinking. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't do, I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he finishes off that great statement, um, blessing God for the fact that he has salvation in Christ. And he launches into Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I was working this afternoon thinking about what we would do and how we would look at the second part. We look at the great problem. We've got that figured out. No one has a struggle to know what that is. It's the issue of sin. We are great sinners. John Newton, the uh, slave ship captain who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, and about 499 other hymns beside that that are not known so well. He one day near the end of his life, he said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And that's our hope, isn't it, this evening? We are great sinners with a great holy God with whom we must deal. We need a great salvation. Well, what I want to do tonight is a whole lot less theological than I've done in in weeks gone by as I was sitting and studying and thinking about how I could just present the salvation that God has 
given to us and, and frankly struggling to know how to put all together. Not that I struggle to know what God's salvation is. I, I understand that, but to bring it and present it for this evening. And the Lord laid on my heart, take Romans chapter 3, and that great, great passage, and we're just going to work our way through it. We're going to unpack it line by line, verse by verse, and just see the salvation that God has wrought. So take your Bibles, Romans chapter 3. We'll read from verse 9 all the way down to verse number uh, verse number 26. Actually, no, we'll read to the end, verse 31. So 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 31. And Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human beings will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law or is God the God of the Jews only is he not the God of the Gentiles also yes the Gentiles also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith do we then overthrow the law by this faith by no means on the contrary we uphold the law What is the salvation of God? How would you sum it up? How would you describe it? Salvation is accomplished by Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness being applied to us. It's the only way we can be saved. It's the only way that God can rescue us from His wrath is if God's righteousness becomes our righteousness and it takes the place of that sin nature. Sin nature has to be dealt with. But as you look at that passage, a couple of things just come to mind as I work my way through it. 
And in verse 17 and 18, you have the end of that statement as Paul works his way through describing those who are under sin. And he says, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we look at our own hearts. We look at what we were like before Christ did that great work in our hearts and our souls. And we could realize there was no peace whatsoever. I remember as a young man when I first heard the gospel, And I was in a great turmoil because it was upsetting my whole life. It was upsetting everything I knew. It was was a trouble to me. But I was in a turmoil inside because of what sin was doing. And that turmoil, as you see there, he says, there's no peace. They have not known any sense of real peace. People could say, well, you know, I have great peace. I meditate daily and I know what it is to be peaceful. But what about when you turn the lights out at the end of the day and you lay down on your bed and you try to go to sleep, and the thoughts of your heart and your mind begin to accuse you, and Satan comes along and begins to poke away at it, as there is no peace whatsoever. But there's even more than that. It's not like they have no peace, and they're, they're dead in sin, all those things. It says they have no fear of God before their eyes. And what strikes me about that is you look around the world, you see there is an arrogance in the sinful heart of man that says, I don't care what God will do. I don't care about God's rules. I don't care about God's law. I don't care about anything that God has to say to me. There is an almost a chin lifted up like, do what you can approach to God. You know, and we see that in our children and we see that in the world around us. It ought to make us absolutely grieve and fear. There's no peace There's an arrogance there. And then Paul goes in in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No man will come before God when he stands in that great judgment day with a great defense of all to explain and try and defend all his actions. His mouth will be stopped. There's nothing that he will be able to say to defend himself against God. His own conscience will begin to testify and rise up as a witness for the prosecution to say, surely he is guilty. He knew what was right and did it not. He knew what God had said, even in the the way that God wrote that law in his heart, and he knew it and he chose it not. Nobody will stand before God with a great defense. We will all stand before God and every mouth will be shut. And we will stand silent as the charges are read and the evidence is presented and we are found guilty. Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We saw last week that even in the time of Adam, before the law was given, every one of us was held guilty before God. Every one of us committed sin. And because of that sin, all those that lived then, because of that sin nature, they inherited the active committing of sin in defiance of God. They died. And the death that Adam brought into the world by his sin, all of us inherited that sin nature, and we were all sinning, and death fell upon all men. He says that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Then he goes on in verse 24, By works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Man may be able to come up with a whole bunch of reasons and explanations about why what he's doing is justified. 
And before man, he can present a compelling argument and a great proof and all kinds of evidence to say, you know what, my actions may be wrong on some levels, but I'm justified. And before man, we can defend ourselves and give some kind of an application or some kind of an explanation to what we are doing. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, for by the works of law, no human beings will be justified in everybody else's sight. He says, by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Speaking of who? Speaking of God. By the works of the law, no human being. Meaning what? Meaning if we can do all the works possible, if we can uh, offer all the sacrifices, we can keep all the laws, we can keep ourselves free from all the dietary problems and, and keep ourselves free from mixing up one kind of cloth to another. All those laws in the Old Testament, if we could fill them all perfectly, at the end of the day, even if not one charge could be brought against us because of all those actions, we would still be guilty before God. Because the basic problem is that sin nature inside. We need to be saved from it. Then he goes on in verse 21 and he says, But now, there's a few little two-word phrases in the New Testament, but now, but God. Great phrase. They introduce a whole change in Paul's argument, although the argument to this point looks totally destitute, totally depressing. There's no hope. Whatsoever, he says, but now a righteousness of all different kind than everything up to this point. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the righteousness of God, which is the salvation of God applied to us, is purely the work of God himself. The righteousness of God. It's His righteousness. You say, what does righteousness mean? Well, the word in its actual root word has the idea of equity. If you're a real estate buff or you like to invest in things, you know what equity is. It's value. You know, we got some equity in the property. We've got some equity in this investment. It's a value there. You say, well, how does that work with God and righteousness? What does that actually mean? And what we can say is the righteousness of God is the moral value of God, which is incalculable. It's of infinitely high value, the right standing of God. It's God's right doing, right thinking, right working. And we can say there are three ways in which you can see God's righteousness unpacked. It's the fact that God is right. Everything that he does is of a right character and a right nature. People ask the great question, how do you explain Joshua and killing all those people, all those Canaanites? God commanded them to do it. Yes, God in his righteous justice and his righteous character ordered that judgment be carried out against those nations because they did not turn to God. They did not repent of sin. And God in justice carried it out and ordered those things to happen. It was based on a righteous character. God is right. God always does right. God always speaks right. God always thinks right. Not for one infinitesimally small second in all of the history of God's existence. If you could look at it that way, could you find one split second where God thought or did or spoke wrong? Everything he did was of an absolutely right character. But not only is he right in character, he's right in actions. He's also in the process or in the work of making others right. 
The salvation that we enjoy is because God worked to apply the righteousness of Christ to us so that we could be clothed in His righteousness so that when God looks at us, He sees not who we are, but He sees Christ over us, Christ in us, and us in Christ. He says the righteousness of Christ has been manifested or has been revealed. What does that mean? It means in Christ Jesus Himself, that righteousness of God was displayed. Christ came and He was born without sin. He never committed sin. He was born holy. He was born both truly man and truly God. And those two natures were bound together, unmixable but unseparatable in one person. So that everything that Christ did and everything that Christ said, everything that He did in all of His actions, His attitudes, everything was of a righteous character. So the righteousness of God is displayed all in Christ. You know, the more you study the Bible, the more you read from Old Testament to Revelation, you realize that everything just focuses back in and points back to Christ. Salvation is purely God's work on our behalf. He sent Christ into this world to be the mediator between God and man. The reality is we cannot be saved by our own efforts. It takes something greater than us and greater than our sin to save us. Otherwise, it falls underneath the same problem of sin. So Christ was sent into the world, the manifestation, if you like, of the righteousness of God in human and truly God and truly man. Salvation is God's work through Christ. He says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And what he's doing is he's pointing back to what he just said earlier, that apart from the law, apart from the works of the law. Now, the world law had a very specific function. We said this morning about how the law was just and perfect and holy and good. The problem was not with the law. In fact, what the law did was it came in and it showed the full extent of our sin, except for the fact that God in grace didn't allow us to see it. The law showed us how much that we were sinners before God. God's righteousness is displayed apart from the law, separate from the works of the law. It, the law shows us how much we are sinners and then he goes on, he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does he mean by that? He means that the Old Testament law and the prophets, the writing, they all describe and they all point to the fact of God's righteousness being applied to us, salvation being made available to us. We saw this morning about the Old Testament law and the sacrifices and the Lamb of God that was offered, all of those things shouted and pointed towards Christ who would come, and He would come and take the place of sinful man. He would die on their behalf and set us free from sin and death. The law couldn't accomplish that because the law was weak. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, uh, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The law couldn't accomplish it. The law could only show us the problem. But the law bore witness to the fact that that's what needed to happen. An innocent victim needed to go in the space of all of us and bear away our sin. So apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, how do the prophets bear witness to it? You go to the book of Isaiah. 
read from Isaiah 40 towards the end, you just see all these displays of the glories of Christ, the suffering servant that would come. Read Isaiah 53. It's just so rich in describing the Lord Jesus Christ and His suffering on our behalf. You read the Psalms. Psalm 22 is the most obvious example. It just shows so beautifully and so clearly the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us. The law and the prophets bear witness to the salvation of God, the work of God to apply the righteousness of God to us. How does it actually happen? Notice verse number 22. He says, The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there's no distinction. So the righteousness of God is applied to us. How? Faith. How does faith accomplish that? Take your Bibles. Stick your fingers in Romans 3 if you want and go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We were talking in the kitchen, a few of us this morning, about different ways of seeing the Scriptures. And the problem is that all men are saved the same way. We are not saved because some of us are Jews and the rest of us are saved a different way. We're all saved exactly the same way. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, one of the greatest statements in the Bible, which the theology of Paul really hangs on. Genesis 15. This is after Abram goes, and with God's help, he rescues Lot from the kings of the uh, Chedorlaomer and his friends, the kings of Sodom and Sodom. And then in verse 1 of chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I cannot, sorry, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. If you got a good Bible, you'll notice there should be a question mark at the end of that. So he's asking, not saying, he's saying, is the heir is Eliezer? In other words, I've got a solution to the problem, Lord, here it is. I've got another guy, we can just bring him in and I can adopt him as my heir. And and there we go, we can fulfill the promises of God through my working. And what does God say? Abram said, sorry, verse 3, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And there's a verse 6, that great statement. He believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. So that faith in God, he trusted that God would keep his word. And that faith, that believing that God could accomplish the absolutely impossible, God looked at him and said, because of that faith, I will apply righteousness to you. That trusting in somebody else. See, the problem was he wanted to fulfill the promises of God by his own strength and his own conniving. But he couldn't do it. God said, no, that will not happen. There will be an heir coming from your own body. And not only will be one, look up at the stars. Modern man and his modern telescopes try and say, there's what, trillions of trillions of billions of billions of stars. And they don't know. They just keep adding billions on the end of a word to try and make more stars. And that's he said. He said, look at that. See all the stars? I'm going to fulfill my promise to you and your heirs will be numbered like those stars. There'll be millions upon millions of them. And in that moment, 
Abram said, there's absolutely no hope. Even if I started having kids right now and just popped them out, bam, 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 like a machine gun, you know, so many rounds per minute, so many kids per minute, brrr, pops them all out. He could never do it. And God's point to him was, listen, it doesn't matter how much you think you're fruitful. It doesn't matter how much you think Sarah is or isn't fruitful. That's not the issue. Even if you thought you could do it in your own conniving, you could never come up with the number of the heirs that I will give you. It has to be God. And back in Paul's statement over here, he says in Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Salvation is summed up in that verse. The righteousness of God applied to us through faith. So how does it work? Faith is like a channel, like a tube, if you like. We trust God, that faith in God. Notice faith has an object, faith in Jesus Christ. We don't believe in the facts of history to save us. You watch out for the statement. I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, therefore I'm saved. Is that a true statement? You should shake your head. It's not. Why not? There's no faith because... I can prove through history without opening the Bible that Jesus lived, died, and was crucified in his death. I can prove all of that with beyond a shadow of a doubt. Romans have records that actually show him living and dying and being crucified. Furthermore, that's putting faith in facts, not God. He says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is not history we can prove, or science we can understand. The object of our faith is God. Say, yeah, but I can't see God. Now now you just hit on faith. Say, but I have all these doubts. How do I deal with those doubts? The reality is the very presence of faith, it almost demands doubts. So how does that work? The reality is by trusting what I cannot see, if there's no doubt there, there's no real faith there either. Because faith says, I can't see. Abraham looks up and says, I cannot see how possible for all those heirs to come from my body. I look at my sin. I look at the glory and the holiness of God. I see there's absolutely no way I could ever achieve washing myself clean, enough to be clean and acceptable before God. I throw myself on God and I trust Him keep his word, and he keeps his word right away, right? No. He keeps his word in his time. Faith has an object, but there's always that waiting period. There's always that going on in faith without seeing the fruition, the reality of it come to bear. There's there's salvation there is the righteousness of God applied through to... Try again. The righteousness of God applied to us through faith. Notice what else he says. He says, for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Moving on to verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's going back and summarizing two chapters of Romans to say everything from Romans 1.17 all the way to 3 verse 20. All that argument is summed up in that statement. All have sinned. There's no distinction. Jew and Gentile both need to be saved by faith. And then he says in verse 24, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. 
Can God simply decide to save you without the cross? Ooh. What about Abraham? Was he saved? Good. Some of you went like this. <laughs> he absolutely was saved. How was he saved? Faith in God. So what about his sin? See, here's the great problem. And R.C. Sproul, again, described as one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. He says in verse number uh, 26, all of what's before that is to show God's righteousness at the present time so that, purpose clause, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means he cannot simply forget about your sin. Then look at Allison and say, Allison learned catechism. She grew up in the Taylor household. Well, that won't count anything. Uh, Allison was, uh, she's married to Steve. That's worth something. We'll just kind of forget about the sin. Don't worry about that. Well, see, the problem is that Proverbs describes an unjust judge and as an abomination before God. So God simply cannot wipe away sin. So how does God save us? Dealing with our sin. I mean, you're in Noble Park Baptist Church. You already know the answer to all these questions. I'm just reminding you of these great answers. The answer is, in verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, that gift comes through redemption. Now, how does that mean? Well, redemption is the idea, I think I've told you before, of taking a, a pry bar and two pieces of wood that are nailed fast together, and you pry them loose. Uh, accountants like redemption because they take their bond, their certificate, take it to the bank, they give it the bond to this, the bank, and the bank takes the value of the bond, calculates the interest that goes with it, and gives them back their money plus interest. They're redeeming the bond, right? So the bond is a piece of paper that says the bank's got to pay me plus some extra. And by giving the bank the piece of money, they're prying loose from the bank their money. They're redeeming the value of that bond. What it means is that we are justified, which means we're declared righteous by God's grace as a gift that came through the prying loose that's in Christ. Prying loose of what? Well, two things. He dealt with our sin, and he also pried us loose from the wrath of God. God's wrath had to be dealt with. God had to be satisfied. I hate the idea when I see it that God is somehow this great big grandfatherly guy in the sky in a big old chair. He's kind of stooped with age. He's got a long beard and a big smile and a twinkle in his eye, and he looks a little bit more like our idea of Santa Claus than God. Oh, you know, he's just, he's a loving grandfather. He just overlooks. No, he doesn't. Our sin does not amuse God. We may wink at our sin. We may turn a blind eye to sin. We may say, well, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, you know, okay, so I broke the tax law. I mean, you know, my accountant does it all the time. What's the big deal, right? We can excuse ourselves. We have all kinds of ways of kind of brushing off and excusing things. But God is not like that. In fact, God is furiously angry at sin. And one of the great problems that we have with assurance of salvation is understanding this fact that God is furiously angry at sin. And that furious anger had to be dealt with. God, we had to be pried loose 
It's almost like God's rage has a hold of us. You know when you're, you're, you were breaking the rules as a kid and your mom and came and grabbed you by the back of the, the scruff of the shirt or the, maybe by the arm and she all but lifted you off the ground and she marched you down to your bedroom and she had a hold on you. And you know as long as it took to get to the bedroom, you were spared from the, what was coming. Right. But as soon as she got in that bedroom and, and she, you know, slammed the door behind her and switched hands. So her good arm was available to do the old wailing. You're going to get it right in my house. It was easy. Uh, we knew when we were we'd gone too far because in our little house in Barrick, we'd hear mom come in and she'd go to say something and she'd snap her jaw shut. She'd turn around, she'd march back into the kitchen and she'd open the drawer and she'd rummage through it. And as long as she, she was rummaging and she couldn't find what she was looking for, the wooden spoon, as it so happened, uh, we were okay. But as soon as that door slammed shut, you know, you had about four, maybe four and a half seconds to get ready for what was coming. And we knew. We all knew. As soon as mom went back into the kitchen, instead of telling us for the 27th time to clean up our toys before lunch, we knew we were destined to face the wrath of mom. Right? And mom's wrath hurt, especially when she was in a bad mood. So you got a good one. But that's what it means. We were held fast under God's wrath. We were destined to face the wrath of God. And it had to be pried loose. God's anger had to be turned away. The redemption, and the other word there, the other great theological term in verse 25, God put forward Christ as a propitiation. Who can tell me quickly what propitiation means? Yeah, substitute's a good one. What else about it? It's another word that goes with it. Yes, the satisfactory view of the atonement, they call it in theology class. And what it means is this. You're absolutely right, brother. It means a substitute, somebody who goes in my place, but somebody who satisfies God's righteous anger against us. Why is it that a bull or a billion bulls cannot atone for one single sin of mine. Because a bull cannot turn away the anger of God. Because a bull is not a human. It cannot fully represent me. It doesn't have that capability. It's a bull, not a human. It's as simple as that. But Christ came, and as the mediator between God and man, he perfectly represented man to God and God to man. And in Christ, the Bible says, God put him forward... To show his propitiation, meaning to show the fact that his anger had been dealt with and turned aside. Why did Christ die such a horrific, violent, painful, and I mean emotionally painful, not just physically painful death? It was to show what God thought of sin. It was to show God's holiness and God's righteousness. It was to show God's full measure of his justice was poured out on Christ. So we are saved as a work of God. We're saved as a work of God displayed in Christ. Christ is the only one that can go between us. And Christ is put forward as a satisfactory substitute in his, in our place. And notice also it says there, by his blood. Why was the blood so important? What is it about blood? That is important. You can tell me. There we go. The life is in the blood. Why are we washed in Christ's blood? 
because the life is in the blood, because the blood can wash us clean. It's the only thing that's clean. What scares me is when I hear Christian messages and, quote, gospel messages that completely remove the idea of the cross, completely remove the idea of the blood. If we're not preaching the blood of Christ, we don't really understand and appreciate the full reality of our salvation. He had to be justified, declared righteous. Look at the second by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That prying loose is only going to be found in Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. We're justified. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we are made righteous. That's a common modern contrivance. God doesn't make us righteous. God declares us righteous. You say, what's the big difference? God makes a declaration over your life. It's like God examines all the evidence in a courtroom, in an actual courtroom in these times, and the Greeks were there, and they come in, all the evidence was presented. And if they said, the Caius, and handed a, I think it's a white tablet, a white stone was handed to the accused party. That white stone said, you have been found decaius. You have been declared just. So the court has examined all the evidence against you and declared that you are now just in the sight of the court. You're not guilty. There's no charge against you. They can't lay a charge. The charge has been dismissed. You are just in the court's side. The scribe, by the way, this is an old tradition, the scribe that took the little white stone and gave it to the accused party always sat on the judge's right hand. I think it's amazing that Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and He ever lives to intercede for us. And we are declared righteous by Christ. He gives us that stone tablet, if you like, that says, you are just in my sight. We're justified. We're declared righteous by God's grace. It's a gift. It's all through the redemption, the prying loose that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfactory substitutionary substitutionary sacrifice by His blood, and it's received by faith. And all of that, verse 25, is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Why is it that the law is so important? And why is it that those Old Testaments can be saints were saved back then? Because in bringing sacrifices and bringing offerings, every time they presented that offering, the offering went up before God's nose and he smelled a sweet-smelling savor, the Old Testament tells us. Meaning what? He just, the smell of burning flesh or burning bull was pleasing to God? No. What it meant was see that, smell that, look to Christ. So in God's divine forbearance, he overlooked. Every time that, that priest walked into the tabernacle, walked behind the veil into the Holy of Holies with the blood and the, and the, all, the censer and the coals and the smoke, did God act justly in not striking him dead? Not really. What he was doing was saying, I'm delaying it. I'll look forward to Christ. That blood that he carries from the altar out there, it reminds me of Christ. The coals and the censer remind me of the judgment that will be poured out on Christ. 
And God in grace allowed them to carry on that way and to fulfill those functions. Why? Because everything they were doing, everything in that arena of the tabernacle, all shouted to Christ. And the salvation that we have is in Christ. It's God's work on our behalf. It's God's work through Christ. It's a work we cannot achieve by our own doing. It's a work that can only be experienced and entered into by faith in Christ, and ultimately it is by grace. You know, sometimes I think we look at the story of the Bible and the salvation that we have, and we look at it like it's something that God had to do, like God was sort of compelled to do it. Never, ever, ever, ever get that idea in the back of your head. Shove it out if it shows up. It's grace. It's God's kindness. It's God's favor. When we get to heaven and we stand around the throne and we sing the praise of God, we're not going to sing the praise of God's justice. We're going to sing the praise of God's grace because nothing compelled him. Nothing put a gun to God's head and said, you must do this. He looked out and he said, you know what? I want to show the glories of my kindness to people who don't deserve it for one iota. I'm going to display that kindness so that all will see the glory of my grace. And you know, brothers and sisters, as we sit here and and thinking about all this stuff and trying to work my way through it and thinking about what we're doing as a church and what our mission is, our mission is not to come into this place every Sunday morning and just celebrate the fact that we have been saved. It is. But that's one part of it. That celebration of the fact that we've been saved is to flow out that back door and go into the neighborhood and the surrounding areas. However we do it, however God puts us into that work and share that tremendous story. Because it's not ours by right. It's not ours by, you know, our achieving it. It's ours because God in kindness gave us that salvation. I don't know about you, but you know, you you read this stuff and and you study it and you begin to dwell on it and think about it. And it just makes me step back in awe and amazement at how great our God is. Amen. Well, I've talked a lot longer than I should have. Let me ask quick, any questions or comments or anything you want to throw out? Amen. Yeah. Grace, mate. Grace. You know, it's just it, it, it ought to stagger our minds. And I think if there's something, if we don't grasp that grace, if we don't sense every day that God in kindness, not because I've done good deeds this week and I deserve God's kindness and God's help, I don't deserve God's kindness and God's help one iota, and yet God in grace helps me every single day, right? Yeah. Okay, absolutely right. Amazing grace, how sweet. Think about that hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Once once was lost. No, I got it wrong, didn't I? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. This is why I have my wife help me do the singing, because I get the words all mixed up. What an amazing God we have. Amen? Amen. Let's give thanks.
Loving Father, we thank you again and we praise you, O God, for your goodness and your kindness to us. Father, when we stop and think about the the depth and the darkness of our depravity, the corrupt nature that we inherited, but yet the sin that we commit because we love it, we desire it, we want it. And Father, we're compelled in a certain sense to do it. But Father, we realize, as Paul is explaining in Romans 3, grace. Every one of us standing before you as we were, our mouths would snap shut. Not a word could we offer. The evidence would fully weigh against us. Not one word of defense would stand. But Father, we praise God that your your wrath has been revealed, but also your righteousness has been revealed. It's been displayed in Christ. Father, we thank you for him who came and spoke every true word and spoke everything you gave him to speak. Father, he, he thought and acted. His attitudes, all of it were a righteous, holy character. At the end of his days, none could charge him with sin. Even his enemies, O oh God, as he asked them, which one of you convicts me of sin? Not one could do it. And Father, even brought before Pilate, and they bring charges, and no charge sticks, and no charge stands. And Father, we just are amazed. Amazing grace. Father, we realize that he was willing to go to a cross, to be nailed to a cross to be suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by earth and forsaken by heaven. No man, no woman in existence before or since will ever understand the sorrows of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And Father, you, as it were, turned the full face of your anger and fury at us toward him. Father, as it were, he exhausted all of your anger. And the great statement in Isaiah 12, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. Father, we thank you that Christ has turned away the anger of Almighty God. Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, that you have saved us. Father, a gift, it's grace, it's kindness. And Father, this evening, we as a group of people would just bow our heads and say, thank you for what you have done. Father, we pray too that the grace and kindness that you have poured out on us would compel us to get up and go out and share such grace with others. Proclaim it and tell it however you open the doors for us to do that. Father, as we launch into this week, a week of prayer, when we come together either in our homes, Father, or here at the church, and we spend time together on our knees before the throne of grace, crying out for each other and crying out for the lost and the ministries of this church. Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers. Father, we've been asking for revival, real, genuine, biblical revival. Men and women's hearts refreshed and revived in the love of a Savior. Men and women with a new and fresh and deeper love for each other. Father, the world is supposed to see the love that we have for each other and know we, that we are your disciples. 
Father, we pray that you would deepen our love for one another. Father, we pray too for the missionaries, those overseas who are taking the time and spending time away from family and friends to share the gospel with those in the far corners of the world. Lord, we think about Brian in Cambodia and the Wetzels up in PNG and the Piats in Indonesia and Father, the, the Mast in Africa and the India, India Evangelical Mission and all their many thousands of missionaries in India working to spread the gospel. Father, we pray that you'd encourage them and strengthen them, meet their needs, that they might continue to share and Minister the gospel of God's grace to others. Father, we plead with you for your help. We know, O oh God, that the work that you have given us to do, we cannot do it on our own, in our own strength. But Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. That in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Father, we ask you for your help. We give you thanks, O God, for a good day together in worship. And we ask these things, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.